ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. All states and territories in Australia, via the ACT, delivered a resounding no to the voice referendum on the weekend. So we're calling South Australia has voted no, and of course with three states voting no, the referendum is defeated as well. It will take some time to understand the repercussions of the failed referendum, but for 18-year-old Armani Francois from Alice Springs, the voice to parliament referendum was an important first step in taking part in Australia's democracy. I feel like I'll take away, you know the journey um, of what, you know, it felt like to be, you know, important and have a say. As a young Indigenous woman, the no vote directly affects her, but she feels change will come. What people don't realise is that this referendum affected and will affect us the most, being that, you know, we are the next generation. I do feel a bit deflated, but I think as youth, um, especially, you know, a youth coming from Alice Springs, I think... I think we will rise and I feel like a change will come. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajuk Country, Perth. On the whole, regional Australia did not support the referendum. We're going to take a whip around the country to see what people had to say. We're going to start in central Queensland, where there has been a mixed response to the weekend's referendum amongst the central Queensland Indigenous community. Durrumbull traditional owner Wade Mann told Katrina Bevan he was disappointed in the result and he's concerned for his people. I hear a lot of people go out there, they think that they're going to lose their property, so we're going to have to pay all this money to the Indigenous people. You know, the same as when native title come in, they thought that they were going to lose all their land and lose, lose, had to, had to pay all this money out. But, you know, that's all lies and these were the things that we had to fight against. Also, we had the Indigenous people who were fighting and saying that they wanted, it wasn't strong enough. The voice wasn't strong enough. They wanted, they wanted to have a, um, a treaty. So they were voting no because it was, they were going the opposite way. So we had the people at the bottom who thought they were going to lose all their land and all their money. And then we had the people at the top who were saying that, you know, it's not strong enough, we want it stronger. And so all these people end up voting no. All we wanted was to be recognised in the Constitution, to be recognised by, by the Australian people as the first people of this land. And also a voice. You know, we want Indigenous people to deal with Indigenous issues. And that's all we want. Now we're going to go back to what we already got. And what we already got is not working. Darumbal traditional owner Wade Mann there. Gungaloo and Bajara woman Sophia Eunice told our reporter Katrina Bevan that she voted no. I feel really sad. I feel like as if we've just gone through another form of colonisation in the 21st century. Mm. Um, so I don't begrudge any Australian who has chosen to vote yes or vote no. Really, at the end of the day, it's the government made a decision to do this referendum and once again put a divide within our country and within our people. But my personal choice was to vote no. Uh, There was a number of factors um, in relation to that, Uh, one of them being that uh, why should 97% of our population vote for, um, for what Indigenous people need? I'm sure Indigenous people, even though there's only about 2.7% of us, are more than capable of voting if we want to give up our sovereignty or not to a constitution. Um, The other main factor was a voice. Um, How would a voice uh, represent over 300 plus tribes? I think if the government, if Albanese actually gave us 
um, a plan of how the voice would work you know even a few different options and that might have been helped with a few swaying votes but I did reach out I reached out to other family members who wanted to go yes um, and I fully support them and I love them for it and I haven't allowed that to create any division for me within my harmony with my family members um, but yeah like I said I, I chose to vote no because of those multiple reasons but I don't begrudge anyone who who, who decided to vote yes to because even they were just doing what they thought was right. And that's all we can do. Gungaloo and Bajura woman Sophia Yunus speaking there to our reporter Katrina Bevan. Central Queensland was one of the areas with the highest percentage of no votes in the country. In the division of Capricornia, 81% voted no, while in neighbouring Flynn, it was almost 84%. Here's some of the responses for those that were at the markets in Rockhampton yesterday. I actually voted no, so I think it's good. People have actually stated what they want. So it's, it's good for people that didn't know what it was all about, that it was a no. Most of the people I talked to were against it. I honestly don't believe that it was a good thing because they've been trying to push it down our throat. It's, it was unreal. So I'm happy with the outcome. I, think, I thought it would go that way, yeah. I thought it was um, a bit um, like a no vote anyway. Like I don't even know why they done it. Kind of, yeah. It was a waste of time, I think. Yes, I'm feeling disappointed because I believe the Aborigines, although they've come a, a long way since I was a child, I remember the White Australia policy, and I believe they've come a long way since then. But I thought this referendum would just give, get them one step closer. It doesn't address all their issues, but I believe that it would they at least get a foot in the door um, for a better life and more say. People who were in the market yesterday in Rockhampton speaking to our reporter Katrina Bevan on their thoughts about the weekend's referendum results. Following the resounding no vote, young First Nations people are reflecting on what comes next. TikTok creator Connor Bowden and Rakesha Satur are determined to look to the future even if the result wasn't what they were hoping for. Here's what they want to see for Australia in the wake of the referendum. So it was bringing us into your lives more and that door's been closed. And I walk around and I can feel it. I will use this and I hope that everyone else out there will use this as motivation to do right by those people. What I vote actually isn't just for me, it's also for my little sisters um, and my little brothers because they aren't of the age to be able to vote yet. I hear people talk about their vision for the future and their vision for their communities across the Northern Territory and it's so inspirational. Voices there reflecting on the weekend's referendum. Kaya, my name's Jesse Flay. I was one of the co-authors of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. I was first a Borlu delegate to the convention for the referendum, and then I was also a national delegate at Uluru. I'm currently a adjunct research fellow at Federation University Australia. Now, Jesse, thanks for making time to speak to Australia Wide today. And it has been a very long and tiring campaign for leaders like yourself. And you want to take a, a, a period of time, a breather, uh, a period of mourning in this next week in terms of talking about the election, the results itself. So we're going to leave that to one side. Yeah, thank you for acknowledging that. Um, that is the decision we've made. We don't want to comment on the outcome of the referendum, but we are happy to talk about other issues and a pathway forward. When we were chatting ahead of this interview, you said you 
you said you're in a positive mood despite the result. What's made you positive? Because we've built such a strong movement nationwide, thousands of people who stood by us and continue to stand by us. And all we can do is remain optimistic if we have a strong sense of spirited inclusion going forward. People have made themselves known to us from all sorts of areas of the community, people who have never worked on a campaign before, people from communities, people from churches, people from unions, um, and just everyday people who just wanted to do what was right. And I know that we'll build some momentum somewhere and, and work with that in some way going forward. There's no doubt there's forces present in the democratic process in 2023 that there wasn't there before, certainly not in the 99 referendum. And one key part of that is misinformation. And this is something you flagged very early on. Absolutely right, yeah. So was it worse than you thought? I didn't expect this level of Trumpism to interfere with an Australian sovereign matter. I did not expect that to take over at this point of our history. There have been suggestions that there was international interference Correct. from lobbying groups. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's, it's an absolute fact. We've had information that, and very upfront um, accounted information, I just want to make clear, that an international lobbying group from the United States funded the No campaign, and that was a lobbying group that also interfered with the marriage equality plebiscite and also a group that interfered with events in the United States. So, Jesse, what, what is the background to that US lobbying group? What do we know about it? Well, I, I use the term Christian very loosely here, but it uh, marketed itself as a uh, exclusively Christian conservative group that had an interest in Christian social values. It wasn't just that group. We also had X, which used to be called Twitter, interfering, and we had some investigative journalism there calling that out. And I also read a piece about China's influence with its social media platform for Chinese nationals in Australia being a a lot more bent to the no case in what it was feeding um, to its users on their phones as well. So all of this worries me because Australia should be able to determine its own future. You go back to post-colonial early musings of the constitution and you see international interference there from more of an imperialist background. Um, Before that, of course, you know, we were a colony under another nation. When is it going to be our time to be independent? When is it going to be our time to have matters in our own hands? Do you think this interference was enough to sway the vote? Absolutely. There's no doubt in my mind. One of the stories I saw toward the end of the campaign from the West Australian was this accusation that Senator Dodson had ditched the national voice for a local voice in Western Australia, and that was factually inaccurate. He obviously maintained his support and still does for a voice for First Nations Australians, but he also flagged the idea of having a a local West Australian voice because Victoria also has its own voice and other states and territories have been making similar moves. So it's things like that where they take two facts and they bypass the link or they create a synthetic link that is easy to make but isn't accurate. In terms of the democratic process, are these new tactics, these tactics, are they the new reality of campaigning in a social media world? They shouldn't be, but unfortunately at this point in time they are. Now, two former prime ministers 
Kevin Rudd and Malcolm Turnbull have joined forces to look into this Rupert Murdoch Royal Commission. And that's a way forward, I think. Most Australians can sign up to that and actually be part of that. So if people head to the website, they can actually sign up and report misinformation as they see it and do their duty as an Australian. That's my perspective. Uh, the fourth estate, obviously, media play a big part in the democratic process too, and they do play a role in public opinion. What was your reading on how the voice was covered by the media? I don't think we can exclusively criticise the media. I just want to make that clear. I'm not just blaming the media for any outcomes for decisions made currently. But what we need to do is call out the people at the top who use media as a vehicle for their misinformation and the lack of scrutiny in some agencies with the influence, especially uh, Murdoch's media. It's no secret that Murdoch has more of a bent to conservative ideas and views and has supported uh, leaders from more of a conservative perspective in the past. But, I mean, listening to supporters like Julie Bishop and Fred Cheney and luminaries of the Liberal Party, notably Ken Wyatt, make me realise that this new tactic is more of a reactive or reactionary tactic than a conservative or a liberal one. And I don't think that some of the people active in that space anymore can realistically call themselves liberals or conservatives. You you focused on the Murdoch media there, but what yeah. about the ABC as a public broadcaster? I mean, this is a you know gloves off kind of day. No one is um, immune to scrutiny, and mm. obviously, from my perspective as a consumer, and this is my personal opinion, I want to make mm. that clear. I've seen more objectivity from the ABC, but even the treatment of Stan Grant is disappointing, um, and that was an incident that played out over the past few months, and people were disappointed to see that. So. Everyone needs to step back and just take a look at how they are treating other people. And at the end of the day, media is a workplace like any other um, organisation and people have a right to be heard and to do their job and to not be subject to bullying tactics. ABC reporter Isabella Higgins yesterday spoke about young Indigenous leaders and what this might mean for them. And as a young leader yourself, how do you think... It will affect people like yourself in terms of creating change in the future. This is a calling to younger Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders across the country. This is not the end. This is not closing off. This is opening up a conversation. We are more relevant and more needed in Australian history now than we have ever been. We've got the most important challenges ahead of us and it's going to take all of us as Australians to work together to find a way forward through that. But what we really need is young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to step up to their place in our society. Jesse, for a young Indigenous person in Derby, maybe 10, 12 years yeah. old, listening to this chat now, what would you say to them? One day, if this country gets its act together, you can be head of state. You can aspire to be the head of your country. Before, it used to be a fairy tale that uh, some magic princess or prince would one day turn into a king or a queen. If we can get our act together as a country for you, and maybe you'll listen to this now, maybe you'll listen to this in 10 years' time, one day there will be an opportunity for you to lead your nation. And I would do anything to work toward making that a possibility. Jesse Flair, thanks very much for talking to Australia Wide. Not a problem. This is ABC Australia Wide.
If you're curious about Jesse Flay's comments about misinformation, the ABC has actually reported on this today. There's an article on the Australia Wide webpage from Carly Williams, Kirsty Wellar and Bridget Brennan there if you want to have a closer look at it. And also we spoke earlier in the campaign, the ABC did about, it was an article from Kevin Newen looking at that idea of foreign interference and looking at Elon Musk's ex in particular. And you can also find that on the ABC. ABC Australia Wide. I think it's wonderful. I think everyone should come and see it. On ABC Radio. Let's head to Lismore in New South Wales, where Year 12 students are getting ready to toast the end of exams by getting gussied up in their formal wear. Many of the students are still feeling the effects of last year's floods. So formal wear has not been high on the agenda, as you can imagine. A charity group called Thread Together has stepped in to provide the students with all that they need for their big night on the town. Board member Adam Warling says the designer clothes will come some way to boosting the students' confidence. I've always said that fashion is transformational. I've worked in the fashion industry for 30 years and I truly believe that when you're wearing something that makes you feel feel good um, and it's comfortable, um, you carry yourself differently. And you know, they're in the midst of their HSC. They, you know, students don't need to be thinking about, oh, I haven't been to a shop to get my outfit. But also, it's not just blood-affected you know, residents, it's also cost-of-living-affected residents. Um, and at Thread Together, we don't judge, we don't ask questions. If people need the help and the principals have, you know, believe their, you know, their students need the help, we will he- be here to help them. Lindley Doe and Peter Thomas spoke to our reporter Bridie Tanner after coming out of the changing rooms and this is what they had to say about it. So I've gotten like a, a pink dress, it's like form-fitting, it's bright pink, it's got a little loop in the middle, it's really cute. And what do you think attracted you to this dress? Um, I think just the colour and how it um, shines in the night because like my logic was the formal is going to be in the night, you know, it's dark. So I need like a bright dress to stand out. What else are you hoping to have done before the night? And you said before maybe a pedicure? Yes, so manicure, pedicure, maybe full set, like got to glam up the toes, the fingers, stuff like that. Yeah, Yeah, to be prepared. Yeah. So I did my first paper this morning, just the English paper one for advanced English. Yeah, it was so stressful. We got through it. What was it like after that walking into a room filled with dresses that you could basically take your pick from? It was so, it's just like, it was bizarre. It was wonderful also. And I think formal dresses for girls and teens, it's kind of, there's kind of like a social construct behind it where, oh, you've got to buy this really expensive dress and you've got to stand out. This is the night of your lives. But um, I think this organisation is really helpful for like girls who, you know, maybe don't have the money like hundreds of dollars to spend on a dress that they wear for one night so and they're really fabulous dresses so I think it's really great. Have you ever done anything like this before? Uh, No no I haven't at all. I know I always like to look at suits and um and the different like ways that people wear them from you know like high class businessman to tacky show game show host but I know it's kind of and I have a bunch of like secondhand suits at um at home but I've Never really, like, gotten one that's just, well, I know, I've never dressed up specifically like this in a full uh, suit, and it feels amazing. What are you thinking of doing with your hair? I know, brushing it, you know, adding some, um, adding some product, um, actually putting it in a 
you know, actually stylish way instead of so it looks like an, I look like a decent man instead of like a, some um, some hungover rock star. What do you think the value is of a program like this? Well, it, the clothes make the man. It gives not only gives um, possible different. It not only gives clothes to um, communities that might not be able to get it, but it also, with clothes, becomes, well, different possible new opportunities. And I think that's a great idea. A very happy Peter Thomas there, finishing Bridie Tanner's story. We're going to stay in New South Wales because it's not often that you get to take your pet to church. But at a recent service in Gosford in New South Wales, the congregation was teeming with animals. Pet blessings coincide with the feast day of St. Francis of Assisi, who's the patron saint of animals and the environment. Carolyn Perryman went along to the service and these are the people she spoke to. On a warm spring day at Gosford Anglican Church, sun streaming through the stained glass windows, the sounds of dogs barking can be heard in the congregation. The beloved animals are there with their owners for a special pet blessing service being held by Minister Christian Ford. In the past I've blessed everything from pet rocks to snakes to mat rats, mice, chickens, rabbits, uh, dogs, cats of course. Um, I'm I'm wanting to find the most exotic animal I can bless. (laughs) Black Schmirdle, Vegemite and white rescue dog Kobe are there with their owners, Kathy and Alicia Clousey. We just think of our dogs as part of the family. So this is the church I go to and I've been coming here for about 12 years. So it's just lovely that the dogs can be part of the service and get a blessing. And yeah, it's just a lovely way for everyone to be included. And what about you? Uh, I'm not religious at all, so I'm here just for uh, the dogs and my wife. I'm blessed to have Alicia in my life because she's so supportive of my own faith journey. So I've been, I just consider it a real blessing that she's in my life and that she's so supportive for me to come here. And um, yeah, so it's really lovely. It means that some of the younger children can bring their pets too. It's, a, it's one of those events that's kind of multi-generational. And I think as um, people of faith, you know, we're always wanting to include people. Um, so yeah, it's a really lovely kind of event where anyone can come and get their pets blessed. The Pet Blessing Service was the first in Gosford for Minister Ford and his wife, Brenda Ford. In 2022, they were based in northern New South Wales, where they saw firsthand the impact of the devastating floods when many animals perished. Last year in Lismore, we were looking at when we were having our Pet Blessing Service and having heard stories from a lot of our friends and people in the community of the impact on animals and the effort that a lot of people had gone to to take their animals with them but the trauma for the people that hadn't been able to. So the ones who were rescued and when a boat comes to get you in the middle of the night and there isn't room for the animals in there, it's quite traumatic. But not just pets, also livestock. And I think um, I had, sorry, I had someone that I worked with who was out in a boat doing what they could. And one of the things that really struck me was when he told me the story of going down Uh, streets and roads not rather than rivers in the boat and having cattle swim up to him and not being able to do anything like knowing that there was just nothing that he could do so that was really quite confronting and obviously really traumatic for people like that so last year in Lismore what we did for our pet blessing was in the afternoon we actually had a pet memorial service and 
We focused not only on pets, but also on livestock. Also in the Gosford congregation is young couple Rhys Kelly and Sarah Moulton holding a framed photograph of their Siamese cat Phoenix. Nixie, as he was affectionately called, died recently at the age of 18 after being rescued by the pair six years ago. He had been living in a nearby drain when they found him very malnourished. He was more than just a pet for us. He was, a, he was, our, he was our little baby. What does today mean to you? It was really nice. It was really special to be able to come here and say, you know, really say goodbye and have the little prayer for him and, you know, making sure that he knew, even though he's up there now, how much we love him and just want what's best for him still. Sarah Moulton, ending that story from Carolyn Perryman. And that is Australia Wide for this Monday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I'll be back with you again tomorrow. I hope you have a lovely evening. Cheerio. ABC Listen.